Hey Jordan, so good to uh, good to reconnect with you. It's, it's been a minute. Yeah. Um, it's been a it's been a little while since we did the last one. We had to take some time off for a little bit. It's just crazy. There's not really anything going on in the news. It's hard to know what to focus on. Be slow. Um, weeks. Really slow, slow weeks. I know. So yeah. I don't know what you're thinking, but. Yeah, the, uh, we have the State of the Union, and I think that's it. Yeah, it's just we're talking about like sports and gaming. I think for this one, Sounds probably good. the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. You might you might be surprised to know this, being a little bit facetious in some of this uh, in what we we're just saying. It's been a crazy couple of weeks since we were last with you. We're talking today. Uh, with Spencer Ackerman, author of the book uh, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, about this uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It's been it's been really crazy. The, the, the discourse has been absolutely um, mind-melting over the last few weeks, but we had a really interesting conversation with Spencer to uh, get into this. We did have to take some time off, as I mentioned, because I was getting my marching orders from the FSB and it was getting all my Putin propaganda talking points in order. Now that that's done, I'm really ready to, to get into this. So I think it's going to be a good episode. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> I think it's good that we took some time before we talked about this. There's no yeah. there's no need to rush into a conversation like this. We don't need to do an emergency pod. Like No one's looking to us <laughs> for the first analysis of a awful and ever emerging situation so that 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 time off i think was was good and healthy yeah although i did rush right into my analysis oh my god yeah but you know that's just how i i'm just that's what i have to do now i'm a slave to the the, content machine the the content mines exactly but how are you holding up though uh because it's been it's been mentally draining, honestly, just the last couple of weeks as this kind of kicked off. Uh, and just like I mentioned, the discourse has been wild about it. You've, you've got the the media has just been really going back to a place uh, in terms of the, the relentless kind of war cheerleading that's going on right now that I feel like it hasn't really been for quite a long time. You see a lot of people getting sucked into that. It's been very, very kind of like alienating and, and difficult to deal with. How are you how are you coping with all that? Well, I, I mean, I try to recognize that it's very easy to be in the West and observe this from afar. Um, and I'm not saying you, you don't, but I, th- that's just kind of what I've been trying to center because this is horrific. It's it's yeah. awful to watch. It's It's frustrating. It's saddening. It's emotional. And I think what what's really tough for a lot of people is that everyone just kind of feels powerless in all this. People want to do something. People, many people want this to end and end peacefully, swiftly, but there's no real way to do that. And people are kind of struggling with how you make sense of that. And I just, I feel like there's just a lot of really wacky conversations and wacky emotions and actions that just like aren't helpful ultimately um and what's most troubling right now um is this growing and seems to be rapidly growing i don't know if i want to call it a consensus just yet but push for a no-fly zone in ukraine without there being like any recognition of what that would look like and what that would almost certainly trigger 
Yeah, I mean, see, people tend to think that a no-fly zone is basically just this magic spell that gets cast um, that, that somehow uh, stops planes from flying this region. But and I don't think people that are that are advocating for that definitely right now have fully reckoned with what that actually is in reality, that not the the sort of fantasy version of it. Right, and there's you know some of the artillery and, and weaponry that Russia is using wouldn't even like be subject to that you know they have these um smirch the mlrs uh systems like the smirches it's basically like these trucks that launch uh they have like huge tubes you you would probably know it to see it and they shoot rockets containing you know warheads and within them are clusters of like 70 plus submunitions that each release 96 individual fragments of metal and to quote jack crosby uh friend friend of the show and friend of ours who is reporting on the ground in ukraine quote any one of which can immediately end a human life and he continues the bomblets themselves often do not detonate meaning there are often dozens or hundreds of small deadly bombs spread across an area after an attack has ended what often happens next is that curious children pick up the bomblets and die. It's worth noting that cluster munitions are banned by an international treaty that both the United States and Russia refuse to sign. So when they're using things like that, that's not subject to a no-fly zone. They're still going to be able to wreak havoc on people, and all this no-fly zone would do would just escalate tensions, be seen as an act of aggression from outside states, or interpreted as an act of war by them, by Putin, because that's you know, basically what he said, and likely trigger a full-out war, including, like, other NATO countries and Western allies. If you want to call it World War Three, it could be deemed as such. That is horrifying. Yeah, that's not going to actually have the result of protecting people in Ukraine. Average people in Ukraine are going to be the first people to be harmed in case of this kind of escalation. Right. And that's the kind of dangerous thing about this moment is that there's a lot of calls for these kinds of escalations in the name of protecting Ukraine, which doesn't quite square up to the actual reality of what this what this would look like if it actually plays out in this way. This is something we talked to Spencer Ackerman about, and I think we should probably just get to this interview um, with Spencer uh, we cover a, a wide range of like of this of what is going on with this conflict, the context of it. It's a really great discussion. I think you folks are going to really enjoy it. And it, you know, it's an extra long one as well. We've been away for a couple of days, so uh, it's an extra long, supersized episode. Uh, really good talk. So let's uh, let's cut cut the intro, cut the chit chat. Let's get right down to business and bring on Spencer Ackerman. He's going to be joining the show right after this. Yeah, I think if you, if Spencer, if you're worried about getting put on Putin bot Twitter lists, I'm certainly on a number of on a number of these lists. Absolutely, yeah. Big Putin but defender over here, actually. Yours, yeah. yours fits though. I think that's what's yeah. That's what's different. That's that's the main difference. It is deserved. So <laughs> mm, I see. Yes. It's tough but fair. Tough but fair. How about mm-hmm. you, Jordan? Are you getting unput any crazy lists right now? Yeah, I, I got a I got a few. Um, I think like the same type of shit, like, like dumbass lefty type stuff. And it's just like, and it, it would only 
come if I like posted anything about like Azov Battalion, which was like maybe once or twice because it's like, yeah, that's that's awful that they're like, you know, a part of the Ukrainian military, but it's not like the main issue here. You know, it's like this is an issue of like Ukraine's autonomy and invasion and now killing civilians. But like if it came up at like any point, it'd be like, oh, this guy just wants to, you know, side with Russia or like any commentary on the U.S.'s relationship with NATO and how it has engaged in foreign policy or engaged around the world diplomatically or otherwise for the last couple of decades, which like definitely is a factor in some conversations. People like, you think this is the time for this now? And like, it'd be the, you know, the same types of responses. And yeah, it's actually a pretty good time now to talk about some of that stuff. I I would say, (laughs) yeah. One as and like an important framework too, when you point this out, is that like, um, you know, trying to explain something is not justifying it. I mean, there is a difference. You can talk about historical context. You could, which you can and should talk. Oh about. Oh my god! What is? He, oh my goodness! I know it's, it's this crazy. This is the crazy Putin defending kind of rhetoric that I'm that I'm often espousing. But you can oh, talk man. about that context, and you can talk about the role that the West has played in like pushing things to this point without justifying this like dangerous kind of escalation that's like you said harming people people are being killed cities are being bombed that's not a justification but we should still probably be able to talk openly and honestly about like what what has been going on and what what yeah. role we played in in pushing things it's, here it didn't happen overnight and it's not like a silo no. like it it's, it's a lot of things at play so i got put on like some, I don't know what they call it, like OSINT watch or something with like a bunch oh, of yeah. people okay. who like I do not like and who do not like me. Um, for as best I can tell, writing two pieces, one of which was taking note of how the United States, after 15 years, the same week that Putin invaded Ukraine, was continuing to bomb Somalia. It so happened that, yes. like, by... Okay, so that like, was one of those, like, open source, like, intelligence things? Well, it's basically just, like, a friend of mine sent me, like, this infographic that someone made, like, compiling, like, from, like, OSINT Watch yeah. or whatever it is. Like, I don't okay, know if yeah, you've yeah. seen this thing. I don't know. But it was basically, I I like... I have seen it, actually, yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing was that was That's something actually that why I, we invited you on the show for that exact reason. Oh, I see. Okay. Per, okay. Yes. Under... <laughs> Good to have this context, you guys. Um, yeah. And then the other thing was, I wrote a piece for my newsletter, Forever Wars, plug, plug, that was taking note of some research by an economist who I respect, noting the similarities between the sanctions on Iran and the sanctions on Russia, and drawing some kind of preliminary points about how. You know, one thing that sanctions on Iran did not do was, you know, bring down the Iranian government, um, but it sure did immiserate a decade of regular working and middle class Iranian people. And when, you know, in one day, the ruble loses 30, you know, 30 and then bounces up to like 25% of its value. I think it's fair to say that like oligarchs are pretty well insulated from the shocks of that and regular Russians who had nothing to do with Putin's invasion are not. And I think it is very necessary when remembering the history of how Putin was able to rise to power by both being proximate to and like benefiting from 
like the deep anxiety and dissatisfaction among everyday Russians about the shattering collapse of their economy in the 1990s, entirely abetted by Western capital. Um, Putin, interestingly enough, um, when after um, he left the KGB and the Soviet Union fell and so forth, he was one of the first people working for the mayor in St. Petersburg, literally welcoming foreign capital, foreign banks into St. Petersburg um, to essentially, quote unquote, invest in the new Russia. Um, and in fact, like just, you know, benefit from the ruthless privatization of state assets. So like Putin is certainly, you know, in both an indirect political sense um, and, you know, to some degree, although we've never really been able to like I was reading Stephen Lee Meyer's book, The New Czar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin, which is like a New York Times bureau chief's um, very journalistic, uh, you know, really engaging history um, of Putin from, you know, being seen up close. And like it makes the point that like, you know, no one ever actually like tied Putin directly um, to, you know, straight up corruption um, during the 90s. But like there's a lot of you know, things that smell funny that people haven't been able to fully connect. Sure. But, the, the you know, the overall point being the mass immiseration of Russia from both an economic and from a geopolitical sense, exploited in both senses by the West, is how we got Putin. Yes. Maybe it's reasonable to ask if the circumstances right now intended, however, to get Putin out of Ukraine are recapitulating those same circumstances. I have no idea. I want to say, like, up front, I'm not a Russia guy. I'm not a Ukraine guy. I, like, I read a bunch. I've done extremely little journalism on this stuff. It is not my specialty. So I am trying to be, you know, OSINT watch notwithstanding. <laughs> like pretty pretty meager in you know what I'm putting out here. I am trying like actively not to discourse about this, um, but I think it's pretty messed up that you know after having experienced catastrophe after catastrophe, you know foreseeable catastrophe after foreseeable catastrophe, engineered by the bipartisan U.S. foreign policy consensus, whether they can perhaps be made to see how some of the disasters that we are seeing right now, not, you know, obviously Vladimir Putin has made his decisions, but like the bed was kind of set in a lot of important ways by uh, Western and capital hubris, um, willful blindness, um, obsessive ideology, a Cold War mentality that never ceased to exist. And perhaps these things that are now like explicitly part of the U.S. response here, like there's, you know, talk about, um, you know, it's and this, of course, is Putin's miscalculation that now Finland is like seeking NATO accession like Putin did that. Right. But. How else, after this 30-year history, could Russians beyond Putin, perhaps who comes, whoever comes after Putin, not interpret what we're seeing now um, in terms of the U.S. response um, through that prism? And that is not a path to de-escalation. And de-escalation is what we desperately need in this circumstance. 
That's all I got. <laughs> well, okay. Well, th- I mean, that's a that's a we really dove right into it head first. Let's take a small step back here and say hello <laughs> to Spencer Ackerman. Hi, national security reporter. He's the author of the book Reign of Terror: How the 9/11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. He's also the, also the creator of the Forever Wars Substack and one of our partners in the Discontents uh, Substack group that we've got going. Spencer, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, First Rob. Thanks very much uh, to Jordan <laughs> as well. Thank you guys for having me. Discontents all day. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Do we, Jordan, do we want to? Yeah, do we, we want to take a st- to. okay. All right, we have to. So Spencer, <laughs> right. we ask everybody the same question, just so we know who we're dealing with okay. and whether or not the interview should continue. And we know you're a comic book guy, uh, but there's a more important attribute, I think, for people across the board, not just in the media. But so Spencer, are you a gamer? No, I'm not. Um, I'm not God a gamer. I don't. Can I can I tell you the why the apologism I could have put up with Jesus. this is yes, a bridge too far though. Okay. I, I have I have um Jordan, I think I might have told you this, I don't know. Um I have I think what even gamers such as yourselves, I presume, uh will like consider a pretty good reason for why I'm not a gamer. And it goes like this. Uh in I guess like the late eighties when I was like seven or eight, uh my mother got me a Nintendo like kids were starting to get and you know it was the one with like duck hunt and super mario and i thought that was fun like the other kids i was like learning how to play these things and like figuring out like how the controllers worked and so forth but the thing is is my dad fucking loved it and (laughs) like the king he is he stopped going to work so he could stay up all night and then through the day playing Nintendo. And this, as you can imagine, like alarmed my mother sufficiently. So after a couple weeks, she threw out the Nintendo. And very rapidly, I saw like when I would like go to friend's house that like if you weren't like actively practicing like your video game skills, like you were just going to get like embarrassed, smoked. Sure. Like after like sufficient time that I was just like, I'm not going to do this. Like that deterred me. And like, I have one life to live. This is not going to be like, this is not going to be how I spend it. Your mileage may vary. You decide if the interview continues or not. Think about well, it. yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Spencer. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, honestly, I'm, I, I'm appreciative of an honest answer and rather than people who try to like they know what they know what we want the answer to be. And I'd rather a blunt it be a blunt no than right. someone try to blow smoke up our ass. Be like, well, I, I, I you know, I played Mario Kart as a kid. So that's that fucking that doesn't count. No, this this is how this is this is how far in the language you're speaking is to me is that a thing <laughs> like pe- like fake gamer wow. cred like is that okay. that's yeah, that's a thing they people steal do valor. oh my god yeah you get the you know you get the employee you get the veteran the gamer veteran discount at all you the restaurants get grandfathered in uh-huh just the, the, the real first responders yeah um i thought a good place to start um not that we already we kind of already started this is like a quentin tarantino movie this interview we started one place in the middle and then we moved back well one thing i wanted to know spencer just to talk about the early stages of this invasion i was just wondering were you surprised 
uh, when this started to kick off. Uh, and I just asked that because I was one of these people who was kind of loudly and publicly saying like, no, of course, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. There, there may be some kind of a, a, a situation where they put troops into these Eastern republics to sort of try to stop the, the fighting there. Maybe that's going to be the extent of it. And my feeling was just like, you know, I just intrinsically mistrust um, what I hear from the sort of U.S. national security establishment and the media. And when I see them kind of getting into this hysterical yeah. mode of there's this imminent invasion, my my first reaction to that is, no, there is not. And like, what is what is actually going on here? So I was quite taken aback when it's like, oh, OK, the, wow, the Russia really did invade Ukraine. This is not some limited action in eastern Ukraine. They're invading the whole country. There's that whole crazy that speech of Putin where he's talking about engaging, yeah. like, beginning this denazification process and demilitarization. I was really taken aback. So I was wondering where you were at um, when this kicked off and whether you were as surprised as I was when this really uh, started to uh, come together. So I I have not spent very much of my um, my career reporting on Russia very, you know, sporadically, you know, stuff I would do for Wired that would be like either like the around the first wave of like the 2010 um, Anna, what's her name? Um, spy outings um, when um, when that happened. But and then like the election interference stuff. Um, when I was at the Daily Beast, but like primarily like I had been like trying to write about Russia genuinely as little as I could, because like I just felt you really need a tremendous amount um, of background that I probably was not going to develop fast enough to like cover this stuff responsibly. Like I'm a war on terror reporter. And so like when Russia stuff intersected with that, you know, like, you know, I would I would write about that, but like, you know, not really like Russia qua Russia and stuff like that. Yeah. And like, I knew, I knew people, including, um, weirdly, like one of the first people, um, I ever worked for in journalism, a guy named Andre Swivka when I was at a now deceased alt weekly, um, when I was a teenager and then in college, um, uh, when I was in college, uh, called, um, New York press, Andre went, um, he's Ukrainian American. He went to cover the orange revolution. I remember reading, um, his coverage there, but like, you know, sporadically stuff, obviously, um, when, um, when the, you know, the, the, the invasion and occupation of Crimea happened, you know, paid some attention to that, but like, I'm not that guy. Um, I would strongly suggest everyone, um, read reporters on the ground. Um, our friend, Jack Crosby, a friend of mine from The Guardian, Sean Walker, um, another friend of mine from The Guardian, um, Emma Graham Harrison, um, reporters who are really doing very brave work um, in Ukraine covering the occupation uh, from the perspective of the people who have to endure it. Um, I say that all to say, you know, when over the, you know, January and February's development of, you know, the Russian um, buildup for what they were describing as an exercise. Like, we've heard a lot of the exercise stuff before, and, like, that's part of the point of these sorts of exercise. Like, you you know, you may or may not remember, but, like, right after 9-11, um, Russia under Putin, like, stopped a very large military exercise that was predicated on fighting, like, a United States-like enemy. So, like, these things kind of happen. Like, they, you know, there's there's ambiguity kind of baked in um, to the process, and, like, you really have to be, you know, far more of, like, an intelligence professional um, and then, 
you know, to, to really be able to say, like, definitively, you know, one way or another that it was going to happen. So, like, on the other hand, you know, this is a weird one because it is Putin fighting a very American kind of war, which is to say, like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, kind, kind of war. And, like, with the important exception of Grozny um, in 1999-2000, Putin has intended to do that. The reason why it has seemed like he has enjoyed like a decade, you know, start or a decade plus, I guess, 15 years, you know, starting with Estonia in 2008 of military success is because he tends to pick very limited objectives, things he knows he can succeed at. He knew he could bite off Crimea. Um, he knew he could you know, stir up enough of a separatist movement or exploit next and separatist movement. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I genuinely, I'm not trolling. I'm telling you genuinely, I do not know. Um, don't come at me. Um, in Eastern Ukraine, in the Russian, you know, speaking parts of, of Eastern Ukraine. Um, and he knew that all he had to do in Syria was to mercilessly, um, pitilessly destroy and suppress um anything that looked like resistance to Assad's rule on the Mediterranean, on the Mediterranean coast and in northwestern Syria. Um, this, so I guess I was kind of not sure one way or the other and could see like, this could entirely be like, you know, bullshit, like Western um, provocation based on like a hysterical reading of intelligence for, for reasons either sincere or cynical or, and, or, I don't know, it could also be, like, Putin really showing himself to be as, like, ruthless as we saw in both Crimea, in, 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 in uh, Chechnya, and um, in Syria. And so, like, I didn't really know which way any of this was, was going to go. I was, you know, watching like everyone else. I was trying to listen more than speak. And then when Putin gives like the fucking Dr. Doom speech. Yeah. Like at that point, I was like, oh no, I guess he really is going to, going to really do <laughs> really this. really going for it. Yeah. He's real. Like, like we're not, we're not talking about like, you know, and, and the, the, the scenes where like his advisors like aren't quite sure they're on the same script with him. And he's like, moving them kind of rhetorically in the direction of like saying like, so you think it's a good idea to end this Nazi threat, um, you know, emerging out of Ukraine too. And like, oh, oh, yeah, yes, I do. I do think that. Um, so at that point, it seemed like, you know, this was, this was now a, a foregone conclusion. The question was going to be like, how horrific is this going to get? Like, this is a force that like has proven that, like, it can flatten a city like Grozny. It can flatten a city like Aleppo. Like, it can do this to Kiev. It can do this to Kharkiv. It can, like, I don't know if they will, but, like, we have to, like, really constantly remember that, like, things can get extremely bad in Ukraine. And that, I think, compels us, like, to seek any de-escalatory solution as quickly as possible. And I'm not sure how many of those, like, I can really identify on offer. One of the people I've turned to to help understand, like, sanctions um, from a critical perspective is an economist named Isfandjar Botnan-Helij. And he wrote a paper um, that I mentioned earlier, analyzing the way these sanctions worked. And it was pretty clear that um, if his analysis is correct, like this is detonating 
and this is basically weaponizing inflation. Um, and if you're an oligarch, that will hurt you, but it won't hurt you anywhere near as much as like someone who isn't able to like move their assets like from country to country as 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 needed. And like it is amazing. Like I don't want to say amazing. That's a bad word. It is um, astonishing to watch as a matter of statecraft, like how rapidly the Western capitalist powers are like lining up to like shut down an economy given the degree to which like the elites that like the political system at the very least is like most ma like maximally responsive to in each of these countries our own most certainly included if not foremost among them like is also how those elites operate like one thing that I think has been pretty positive in terms of like capital D discourse about this is there is you know at least I have seen much more of an understanding um, that like the United States is also an oligarchy. I don't know yes. like what you this guys is not think. a distinctly Russian phenomenon. Like I don't know if you guys, if maybe you you know you you guys who have um, been like more online than I have over the last you know week or so, you tell me if you think that impression is um, is exaggerated or is, like the a function of like the crowd that I follow. But you know I have been surprised the degree to which like making that point has been somewhat frictionless. In the way that, like, as I found out, like, if you talk about, like, the sanctions being very potentially bad, or have you noticed the United States is, like, continuing to do its own forever wars 15 years later in countries like Somalia, yeah. like, that turns out not to be friction. That turns out to be rather contested points. I think, you know, there... there definitely was surprised with how often things like that got mentioned. Like, uh, but I... I I did see some pushback that with so many other aspects of this, now is not the time to be talking about that. This isn't when you should be bringing that up. I did see a lot of that kind of yes. cutting like, oh, you got to the lefties really want to keep driving this point that America yeah. bad. And it's just like, well, no, you I mean if, if this is if this is a problem <laughs> and we have that here, but what are you doing about it? And these people who are trying to shut down that discussion aren't willing to do anything about it, even when this isn't happening. If there is one through line that I found um, with the war on terror, um, like something that just became like a pattern that repeated so often that it became like very grimly predictable is that once people are convinced that like they have no choice that like only one option is like morally acceptable and possible then it is extremely difficult for when that policy fails for failure not to become an argument for escalation instead of reconsideration every time the wars went worse the argument yeah. was throw more into it every single time Every single time. That is something that I'm very worried about with something like this. Because, like, you can always eat, like, particularly because it seems like, you know, there was a moment while the United, like, the moment before the invasion when we were talking about how the Biden administration was deliberately starving uh, yes. Afghanistan, <laughs> like, crippling the economy of a country out of spite for losing for having the temerity to to win a 20-year war against the United States. 
there was starting to be some discussion about how these kinds of sanctions, like the United States has put on Iran and is now putting on Russia, are not, in fact, like alternatives to war. They're on a continuum with war that like this is economic, this is capitalist siege craft. And if you are on the receiving end of this, if like you are not like if, if you know, if as as precarity envelops more and more of your life, you know, are you more or are you less inclined to be susceptible to demagogic messages? Right. Like, I think the United yeah. States has really demonstrated this. That, and, and we were starting, I feel, to get somewhere in that discussion because, like, the abject moral horror of starving Afghanistan, decimating its central banking, structurally doing so, um, was, was so enormous to contemplate. Um, and then Putin invades Ukraine. And because, you know, it seems like there's no choice that won't involve more war. I think that's the generous understanding of why people are so in on these sanctions. Um, there has been like like a lot less patience with people like myself who have made that point and who like even when, you know, we make the argument that like, you know, I think the problem with the sanctions is that they risk like starving and immiserating like millions of people who didn't choose the invasion and can't control it and can't stop it and is basically like a taunt to a man who I reiterate flattened Grozny and Aleppo to care about the well-being of his people. If the point is that Putin as an autocrat who rules through a personality cult, which I've seen like repeated enough and like I don't particularly think it's wrong. But if that's the point about like the thing about Putin that I see you know, very often made in the press, then like that ought to like give you more pause, right? About the sanctions magical ability to compel Putin to change his behavior because the people of Russia who as we like, what are they supposed to do? Like the people of Russia are like have been so overwhelmingly suppressed in their ability to protest domestically by the Putin regime that I, I truly don't understand like what the end game of the sanctions is, is that like someone in the Kremlin kills Putin and like orders a retreat. Um, you know, one of the well, things got U.S. senators that, like Lindsey Graham openly speculating on this, openly speculating about that. About it, which seems a little irresponsible, I think, from an elected official. But, you know, like, I, I guess I, that's why I'm sitting here and he's over there. I mean, like the thing about American <laughs> exceptionalism is that you don't really ever imagine that the person on the other side of the assassination is going to be you. And like, I, I would suggest that like, you know, the 21st century isn't really going to go America's way guys. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I normally hesitate from predictions, but like, I just think like, you know, multipolarity is going to proliferate. And, you know, even when I look, the United States, the United States is not going to be done like on the global stage, the Ottoman Empire, like you could really argue like the Ottoman Empire was under decline, like anywhere from 100 to 300 years before its actual collapse. Well, that, I like, mean, like what yeah. you're saying, I mean, even this invasion in and of itself is kind of evidence that we have kind of stepped into this new multipolar world, because this is not right. something that would happen if there was still the situation where America was the 
undisputed, unequivocal uh, global world police that everyone kind of accepted the situation. It's clear that there is a kind of new uh, geopolitical reality that's kind of emerging here. And I think this in, this in invasion of Ukraine is kind of the first sign of that, this kind of real sign that that is kind of the, the new paradigm that we're, that we're stepping into right now. I don't know if it's the first, I, especially because like, you know, Syria was right there. Um, you know, you had Syria as like a very like almost impenetrably like complexly multipolar foreign sponsored um, civil war revolution uprising like jihadists takeover like like it was, you know, drawing in like multiple superpower challenges that now had to like wonder, like, what does the stasis that this produces itself ultimately produce and like we don't have an answer except that like it can sure as hell preserve Bashar Assad's hold on power and I guess the point that I'm stumbling at making is that if this is going to be like likely how the world takes shape that ought to give like more reason for pause about the consequences of like immiserating Russians like especially if as can only happen if Putin's strategy somehow succeeds, like to deepen the war. Like it, it seems, you know, again, I don't know this stuff. Like Russian Ukraine are not my things. Don't come for me. A whole lot of this is extemporizing right now. But like if Putin succeeds, the Ukrainians are not going to like lay down their arms and not resist. I think that is exceptionally clear. Um, from from the last week. Um, so the Russians, like, can occupy Ukraine, but, like, not peacefully, like, not, not under, you know, conditions without resistance. The longer that goes on, this, the longer the sanctions persist, and then inevitably, I think, the escalatory pressures on the United States and NATO to back a Ukrainian insurgency are going to be overwhelming. This is going to take a tremendous amount of political mobilization to resist because like left on its own, the entire political establishment, which is like celebrating like a, a like a moment seemingly of, of like, if not unity consensus is only going to ask as an occupation of Ukraine persists. Surely they know the generals, the paramilitary structures. It, it sure looks like the CIA would know, like, the most nefarious actors um, in Ukraine that are surely going to get, like, the most, um, like, unfortunate exposure um, in the case of a nationalist revolution um, against an occupier. Um, and, like, that's going to be so potentially catastrophic that it will be an enormous test of where, like... Um, a socialist, internationalist-minded left, um, will, you know, will will that left contend against that point? How successful will it be? What in a post-Bernie Sanders world will that look like? Would that look like? I don't have any answers to any of these questions. I think, like, these are going to be, like, questions to watch as, like, facts, you know, compel them um, in their development. Um, but it just seems like as best as I can see is, again, a non-expert, don't come for me, um, that like if Putin succeeds, 
that's going to be like catastrophic for him in a way like really so grimly reminiscent of the United States toppling Saddam Hussein. The worst thing that could happen is the United States got what it wanted. And that's exactly what happened. I'd like to get your thoughts on the sanctions and how they work, because I think you were kind of you you made some comments about how you were surprised not necessarily surprised but kind of like you know frustrated and your reaction to uh taking on you know core components of russia's economy in the immediate aftermath of doing the same in afghanistan and just you know leaving people there to languish and we're seeing downstream effects already and like you pointed out this is going to affect the average russian who had nothing to do with the invasion and you know by even what we could tell, you know, a ton of people in Russia are opposed to this. 13,000 protesters, over 13,000 protesters have already been arrested for protesting uh, against the invasion Four over 4,000 just this past Sunday. So people are still taking to the streets to protest, knowing what they are, uh, you know, what they're risking, or, you know, a brutal assault or arrest. And some of these sanctions have downstream effects. So, you know, the, like you pointed out, the ruble just crumbled and you know think it's just worth like less than a penny uh to the dollar and you know that that makes things harder to uh to to buy you know people need uh funds and all these other companies have like you know piled on and this is what i've really been fascinated by and 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 maddened by because some of these companies have nothing to do they had nothing they needed to do they weren't touched by these sanctions some of these companies are doing it for like positive pr like nike and adidas and spotify are all saying oh we're gonna shut down operations in russia ikea is gonna close its stores and all of these companies disney isn't going to release new movies in russia and it's like who the fuck cares and it's just like all of these things collectively make the living conditions for people in russia worse under this i think that the intent for for all of this collectively is to make people there so angry at putin that they'll turn on him and 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 oust him but like studies on sanctions show this doesn't really work especially with an autocrat he doesn't he doesn't care why would he care never happens why would he care he flattened grodzny this is supposed to be like the people who make this argument like they're supposed to be the ones who can recite to you the way that he flattened grodzny he flattened aleppo he took crimea like he like you know in almost a napoleonic way like ousted old elites and replaced them with his own and that's again like a story that ought to militate against the theory that like is repeated so often i wonder if it's even believed because it never bears out like that the sanctions will ultimately produce like a catastrophic effect on either the targeted regime or its policies and like that just doesn't happen like the times that like, it, it just vanishingly few compared to how much sanctions are pursued by the united states um as um you know increasingly done in a manner that and this is where like the analysis of of the current sanctions comes um reminiscent of what the united states did and uh, continues to do um to iran um the the so-called crippling sanctions ahead of the the nuclear deal the point being i am not an economist and like i'm certainly not like a sanctions economic technician um so i have been relying on the work of an economist named Isfandiar Batman-Helage. I apologize, Yar, if I mispronounced your name. Um, 
And on March 1st on my newsletter, Forever Wars, you can read a piece called Making Ordinary Russians Suffer for Putin's Invasion. And his analysis of the sanctions um, is that I'll just read like these are two paragraphs that he writes on what he expects, like their like immediate economic material um, result and then its political impact. So there is significant potential for domestic wealth to pour into the stock exchange, whether spurred by the inflationary environment or encouraged as a matter of new government policy. The implication is that capital markets are useful tools for preserving capital. The desperation of middle and working classes in Russia may help shore up the wealth of oligarchs already in stocks and real estate. Many of the enterprises that oligarchs control may successfully adjust to the new reality and remain profitable. A new class of light oligarchs may emerge as certain light manufacturing enterprises benefit from reduced competition and better export prospects. The financial war could also provide a pretext for state capture, with private capital facilitating rentierism, corruption, or smuggling deemed expedient in the face of sanctions. Take all this together and it becomes clear that the most problematic aspects of Russian political economy the obscene concentration of wealth among a politically connected ruling class will remain unchanged in the financial war. Meanwhile, the immiseration of the middle and working classes will further disempower civil society, creating a dynamic where dangerous protests are the only means through which to air grievances and in which deprivation focuses those protests on wages and bread. Is that a place we want to be? I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially when you point out the direct link between the West uh, destroying and plundering the Russian economy in the 90s, leading directly to Putin in the first place, um, you see this cycle repeating itself again. And yeah, I don't see like there's there's such potential for for that to go uh just as badly as it did before, which is a hard thing to, I think, really get on board with. To say nothing of the fact that, like, it's not like, you know, any country should be able to just participate in such a, such a violent invasion with zero consequence, but at a certain point, there's still this question of, like, how America still has this ability to play world police in this moment, and to kind of morally grandstand in the way that they are right now, and, just, and, and to enact these kinds of consequences, while they themselves have committed horrific crimes uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, while our our allies in Saudi Arabia and Israel are committing these horrific crimes as well. There's a moral no, question there as well, whereas what, what at what point does America lose this ability to engage in this kind of like economic punishment for Russia committing these crimes while we ourselves or you know, we in the West are guilty of, of our own set of horrific crimes for which there's never been any accountability or no punishment whatsoever? I would just also add that like a dynamic that will be very soon important, I think, to consider is that Russia has its hawks, too, and they're experience has been I, I mean like look also I'm not a Kremlinologist so maybe I'm I'm gonna pump my own brakes a little but the point I'm going to make is that we have seen through the war on terror examples of how we often do not take into consideration the degrees to which our adversaries are tremendously adaptive and respond to provocations that sometimes the United States does not appreciate that it is making. And just from reading Stephen Lee Meyer's book, I'm something like a third of the way through it. It seems that there are enough of those people 
like inside the Russian state apparatus, Putin speaking for them as someone who like, you know, watched an empire collapse and then was determined like ever since to find a way to avenge that. And like now has reached a point where like I was, you know, listening to um, Tony Wood um, tell Dan Denver on The Dig, you know, someone who who really is, um, you know, a, a Russia expert, um, like say that like this was the first time he could like recall Putin doing something that he considered truly irrational, that like Putin had made a, like previously there had been discernible and this is my understanding of his point you know you you, can, you understand why putin flattened chechnya explicitly he was trying to avenge the humiliation of losing the first chechnya war as well to stop as he like as stephen lee meyer's book has him saying like really consistently what he considers for i think real material reason as well as historical reason historical context certainly I'm not saying I endorse this view of history. I'm trying to explicate it. The fracturing of a Russian empire that, to a certain mode of thinking, is Russia itself. And, like, that needs to contend in peaceful ways with Ukrainian nationalism, but no one's trying to hear that right now, particularly in its relationship with them, uh, with Ukrainian nationalism. And in his, like, moves to, you know, as as you know, seems to be the, you know, a through line here, not just avenge, but also reverse um, the loss of a kind of greater Russia, like a real revanchist move in a kind of like classical realist sense. Then like, even on those terms, the invasion of Ukraine is just fucking crazy and seems like him losing touch. I am, you know, learning about these cultural and historical dynamics like everyone else. So I make no like claim to expertise. Do not come for me. We're on a podcast and we are vibing. Uh, but <laughs> that's when I, you say I, that legally people can't come for you when you legally say that speaking, so. legally <laughs> speaking, yeah. that's it. Yeah. You, you have mm -hmm. no power anymore. Your jurisdiction <laughs> is done. <laughs> you know, I don't know how, like what story Putin has told himself about like how, you know, maybe he believes this shit that, like, the Zelensky government is a Nazi government NATO stalking horse. Um, the NATO stalking horse at this point is fucking, like, if it wasn't before, buddy, it sure fucking is now, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Zelensky, I mean, he, for the way he's, he's given NATO uh, the, it's, the, it's the right people there. that are part of that, that it's given it's, them everything they wanted, yeah. Like, we're talking literally about the possible NATO accession of Finland. Like, this, like, you know, bellwether shit, like, right up against... You know, right up like real, you know, core Russia going back to Peter the Great in 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 you know this mode of thinking. So great job, Vlad. But this is a dangerous thing. I think the lesson that we really ought to you know take is a lesson from Syria that like there are so many levels of bad this can get to. And one of those levels is also like the potential extinction of mankind. <laughs> like this yeah, is that's a pretty bad one. Yeah, like I don't want to be an alarmist about this, but like this is exactly the shit you wanted never to happen. Like a real NATO Russia like confrontation at a moment where like 
Putin really seems like he's just fucking going for it, like yeah. from from a historical perspective. Although and, I know you said you were kind of like tuned out of the online discourse, but there's a lot of people online that are reminding us now. Yeah, nuclear winter is it? Would it be really that bad? You know, yeah, it would be. They would be. Are quote, they seriously? Unquote, are, it would be like, quote people, unquote no, bad, but bad. You know, it wouldn't be. There's there. a, there's a but. There that, are people. Yeah, there are people who are putting like. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, are, oh, oh my yes. god. <laughs> yeah. I've never. I've, That's where the discourse is at. Uh, the discourse right is at what about the discourse is at what abouting nuclear winter? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not as right. bad as it's people not make it out. You're being alarmist, yeah, being a bit of alarmist with the whole nuclear annihilation thing. I just really have to say, like one of the lessons that I take from COVID nineteen, I guess, is now like particularly now that like this entire generation, like multiple generations of Americans, basically the experience over the last thirty years is that American exceptionalism on, like, unimaginable, on previously unfathomable scales makes American, like, lack of consequence seem just, like, as natural as the weather. And, like, supposedly 9-11 shattered that, but really, in fact, it validated it as the war on terror in its ongoing sense is proven. And COVID-19 has just sort of showed a whole lot of people who are, like, willing to espouse, like, shit like herd immunity because they imagine they're the immunity and only other people are the herd. Yeah. And I submit to you that one real dangerous consequence of American empire and the very central to being American doctrine of American exceptionalism is that we do not adequately appreciate first how bad like shit can get like this this really can like run a at, like, like a literally apocalyptic not like a like a hyperbolic one a literally apocalyptic possibility and once that exists, you have to wonder about who is going to be able to prompt a de-escalation from that. How much residual communication can exist and remain existing amongst, you know, military staffs? Maybe it's important to back up in one thing, because this may not be obvious for, um, for listeners, but like, one of the reasons the world still exists is because during the Cold War, the American and Soviet national security apparatuses, particularly the militaries, realized that they had to constantly be in communication so as not to surprise the other side into thinking that there was a potential, you know, nuclear possible threat to themselves underway. So lines of communication for decades, even during periods of deep political turmoil, have held and this is going to be a moment in which like that structure is going to come under very serious challenge and the substance of those communications which we may not know um it's going to take put it this way it will take reporting to find out like that's going to be a very important thing to watch you know he says you know because like the alternative is that like we're recording this right now at 10 o'clock at night and i'd really like it to like not very suddenly get bright <laughs> yeah you mentioned a while back too how you know you mentioned you know russia does have hawks and this is there has been this element regardless of how how 
beyond any reasonable explanation of sort of self-defense or i mean you talked about the the sort of like the american aspects of this of this uh this invasion and i think that's kind of another part of it is this kind of giving these very humanitarian reasons like it seems like it is very inspired by uh, like american war on terror rhetoric as putin talks about these humanitarian purposes defending people in east ukraine and this denazification process etc but i mean if the reality is even if you think this is over the line and not you know w- way beyond any reasonable claim of self-defense as i do just to clear up this up in case one's confused from my viewpoint on this <laughs> but there's really very real phenomenon that we do need to like i think probably talk about here i mean i so i've been talking about this stuff for a while i wouldn't call myself an expert in russia and ukraine or anything like that but i've been talking about this stuff for a while because uh you know i'm canadian and i've been wondering why for the last few years, our government has been arming and funding and training these militias in Ukraine, including like Azov Battalion and these neo-Nazi militias. Our prime minister in waiting, our deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, is this kind of like uh, part of this ultra-nationalist Ukrainian diaspora. Her grandfather was a was a Ukrainian nationalist fascist collaborator in World War II, Michael Chomiak, and has had this like... That seems bad. I'm just going to say bad. that seems bad. No, it is, it is very bad. So that's been my general viewpoint on this is that, like, I don't think that it is good that the Canadian government, as well as the United States government, have been, like, arming and funding these groups um, in eastern Ukraine. And, like, after a certain point, we have to ask ourselves these critical questions about what our government has been trying to achieve by doing this. I mean, I know that what the rhetoric is, how they're just, you know, they're they're protecting Ukraine from this Russian aggression. Um, But this kind of does go both ways. And even though I think Putin is very cynically weaponizing a lot of this stuff, um, he's cynically weaponizing this this very real fascist element in Ukraine, even though this idea that Ukraine is some country that's just infested over infested with neo-Nazis, I don't think that's true. Um, And we shouldn't we shouldn't really pretend that that's accurate, but he's taking these very real concerns that, that that the West has really openly contributed to, whether it's you know arming and funding these neo-Nazi militias, whether it's this process of NATO expansion that's been happening over the last several decades, which took place, by the way, like you pointed out, uh, Spencer, after the West totally destroyed and humiliated the Russian economy, they still continued this process of NATO expansion. You have a number of people from Joe Biden himself to Henry Kissinger, all these kind of uh, American uh, politicians and diplomats. Tom Friedman about saw it. this, yeah. right? Like Tom Friedman actually got this right. Like Tom Friedman in the 1990s, he, like would write like NATO expansion is a bad idea. Like when the Clinton administration began pursuing it. And also it is important to recognize that like, you know, Poland and Romania, for instance, like have very real historical reasons for wanting like outside protection against even a very weak Russia, right? Like, those are real historical, like, those are historically based. Like, the narrative that I'm about to describe, and very importantly for those out there, not endorse, but in fact describe as best I can, never, of course, is going to be interested in taking, like, those historical realities into account. So I say that as a caveat. But basically, like, in 2007, I barely remember this because I was writing about, like, Iraq primarily then. Um, but I was covering the Pentagon as well. And I, like, barely out of the corner of, of my brain, like, remembered in 2007, like, Bob Gates, the Secretary of Defense, flying home from, like, this big international security conference known as the Munich Security Conference in a huff in protest over a speech that Vladimir Putin gave. And... The speech itself is worth reading because Putin 
outlines in it what he is trying to say it has been like to see the fruits of American unipolarity. And with the speech, it is unfortunate that now it is so easy to cast an understanding of that perspective. That is not, again, to say an endorsement of it, but an understanding of that perspective as essentially buying Russian propaganda. The trouble for this is that, like, NATO, from the perspective of someone, as we've been describing, who has this sense of humiliation, um, seeing their country go from being a great power to being an abject one, um, in which foreign powers are able, after like making promises against NATO expansion in 1991, like violate them from their perspective. And do this while Western, like, shock doctrine capitalism contributes to, like, this overwhelming wave of destabilization in 1998. Interesting point of fact that I learned from Stephen Lee Myers. Putin kept the guy who was heavily identified with that in his government. So the narrative that Putin is somehow an alternative to this um, is, as best as I can tell, at a minimum, like, overstated. Um, and probably like significantly bullshit. But I'm only a third of the way into this book. And from there, Putin continues to talk about how like, you know, you talked a lot about international law. Then the war in Yugoslavia hap happened. And we found that you didn't actually care about the rules that you set out concerning when the United Nations, you know, blesses military force. Instead, and this is ultimately true, NATO decided for itself and they decided at Russia's expense. There was during that war a very famous moment where a movement of, I think, Russian infantry um, towards an objective that NATO holds in Kosovo happens. General Wesley Clark, the commander of the NATO mission in Kosovo, that is to say the NATO war in Kosovo, like orders a British subordinate general to like intercept the Russian movement and stop them from advancing. And the guy famously goes, sir, I'm not going to start World War Three for you. <laughs> and then Putin like kind of gets to what I suspect is the reason that Bob Gates had to get up and get out of there is that he's kind of saying to this audience, and now everything's fucking on fire. We see what you decided to do. You decided to generate a pretext to invade Iraq you occupied it. You fucked it all up. It's a disaster that we don't know how to mitigate. You did that. I warned you not to fucking do it. Chirac warned you not to fucking do it. Schroeder warned you not to fucking did it. You fucking did it. And the rest of you went along with it. And like he goes on and on in this vein. And the trouble for like the US and NATO there is that like they can't point to how in fact they have in fact been successful in the rules-based international order like has has you know has been a, a net benefit to everyone and not just been a way that the united states and its allies and you know what we mean by that as well is like international capital benefit from like that's the point seemingly of the rules-based international order and it is from there that putin like then seems to basically say like you know if this is the way you're going to behave, then like, fuck this. I'm not going to go along with it. This is basically a rule of the jungle. He makes a point of saying like, the, the thing that stopped 
nuclear annihilation is that there was a balance of power and there isn't any more. You took the balance of power that we had during the Cold War with a great Russia and a great America and you smashed it and you made us promises about how that wouldn't be predatory for us. You broke them. And now we can all see how well your plan turned out. And I don't know how overstated this is, so I don't really want to overstate anything. But that seems to have marked, because Estonia is the next year, a real point of departure for Putin to try and basically assert himself as part of this supposed return to balance. I personally think you do not, under any circumstances, have to hand it to him. His version of the balance that should emerge is Aleppo. Like, we saw what this is. Like, it is not an alternative to imperialism. It is more imperialism. Like, there is no way to view it, I think, as anything but that, like, there has to be a way to stand against both this overwhelming act of aggression, unforgivable act of aggression, against all of the American acts of aggression ongoing right now under the umbrella framework of the war on terror, the Israeli act of aggression against Palestine, on and on, all of these things. I like it's it's like it's depressing that like we're in such a discourse where like exceptionalism still kind of reigns. And I I think that that is only a way uh, to perpetuate like the atrocities of the world by convincing yourself that you're mitigating them as any number of, of, of conflicts that like are, are fought under the sheen of um, uh, like a humanitarian intervention. Not that this really could be like adequately, I think, like even in propaganda, like as a matter of technical adequacy, like portrayed that way. Um, but we'll sure see the way this develops, right? Like, I, you know, we have not yet begun to info war. I kind of want to bring it back home because so much of this, you know, everything does, right? And the reaction that I've seen in the media has been, you know, some reports on the devastation and attacks on civilians and, um, you know, the victims that the media has deemed worthy. But part of it's also like, what is this going to do for prices in the United States? What's this going to do for gas prices? And very little conversation, and not to get back into the sanctions, but very little about what this is going to do for uh, Russians, what this is going to do for uh, the people uh, in Ukraine and like outside of like being like directly impacted by this, like only some reporters, like you've mentioned them, have, have have taken it on. But others have just, you know, kind of focused on like turning Zelensky into a sex symbol or, you know, doing that whole weird thing that people do whenever someone new is in the media for a while. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at this from like a 10,000 foot view. Uh, additionally, there's been very little recognition or conversation around the suffering that people in all of these other countries who are victims of uh, invasions, wars of aggression, uh, imperialism, whether the United States or, or other countries, and very little attention has been paid to them to similar types of suffering or uh, displacement, uh, the creation of refugees as a result of these conflicts. Uh, and especially, but not limited to, Yemen. And this is a country that is 
you know, enduring the worst human rights uh, crisis uh, in in the world. You know, 13 million or so people are poised to starve this year. The World Food Program is already struggling, and now you you have to take Ukraine and probably Russia into account. Uh, on t- t- so it's like more people are going to need assistance uh, from an already strained uh, effort, and that doesn't really get a lot of attention. So could you speak to kind of this American-centric view of victims of this conflict and how it kind of clashes with coverage of uh, Yemenis uh, and, and folks in other countries and this, you know, the, the, the fretting over U.S. gas prices now as a result of this as like a, a big thing that we should worry about. So I'm not qualified to talk about like the the oil politics stuff. I feel like people with like economics backgrounds like I'll leave it I'll leave it to them I want to I want to learn from them I don't want to pretend like I can <laughs> like I have anything like intelligent to say about that but I will say I did just take a I take a road trip um for family reasons this weekend I'm like holy shit gas is really expensive <laughs> and I don't know which way that cuts it's just like a fact but um, I mean when on the day of the invasion though Biden specifically asked America's uh altruistic moral oil CEOs to not price gouge or not do any of that stuff so i'm sure they're gonna i'm sure that i'm sure they're gonna be right on that like you know there's a bill that it's by by, among other sponsors liz cheney and Alyssa slotkin that like is gonna basically move aggressively so like u.s-based oil companies can step into the business of of supplying you know germany and you know however else it works um with the loss of Nord stream too so like we're you know the Ukrainian people are going to lose here, but the oil companies are definitely not, right? Like, this is already, like, aligning in such a way that that seems like a pretty obvious beneficiary of a protracted war. I saw, like, there was a New York Times piece today that spoke to a psychiatrist, they, like, quoted a psychiatrist in Ukraine that just said, like, I've been, you know, you know, in therapy, we've been communicating about how there are, like, you know, negative and positive ways um, to express your anger at the Russians for invading. Like an example of positive ones, you know, will be like collecting empty bottles for the, you know, so to make Molotov cocktails. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, as someone who like has reported from Iraq and Afghanistan, like that's something I could have written about like an IED factory. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. like, not. Like Absolutely. that's some, like, It's interesting who has this perpetual right to defend themselves and who doesn't. And who and doesn't? Who, like yeah. this is how this is how how will Israeli military censors, you know, react to a piece like that amongst Palestinian freedom fighters, right? That that has been just like really conspicuous and as journalists, it's our responsibility to like not just pay attention to that but like aggressively call attention to that when you see like asshole reporters sputtering on television about how like they can't believe this is happening in a civilized part of the world yeah it's not even subtle like really aggressive like in the same way that like we are horrifically learning who amongst ukrainian refugees polish uh border officials will and will not let in, meaning that they're not letting African refugees in Ukraine out of the country, and they may suffer and die as part of a migration crisis exacerbated by how, and this is 
certainly a dynamic that Putin has played a substantial role in not just endorsing, but excusing about um, the politics of refugee resettlement um, and like nativism uh, offended by that while producing the refugees through your fucking wars. It's it's a it's a, a phenomenon that like over like 20 years in this business is is just like really depressing to see develop in the sense that, you know, we're not I don't think asking ourselves, each of us and, you know, of society asking like the consequences of just how much war we experience virtually and the relationship between that and how readily like the discourse goes to like the bloodiest fucking possible option. And I would just submit that there's some sort of relationship there that like, you know, the fact that wars unfold on the same devices that you use to entertain yourselves, I think inevitably has an effect of making a war about a narrative that is personally satisfying and feels maximally heroic. And that's a real fucking dangerous thing to do when we're talking about nuclear states. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think just the, the reactions, I know you said you would take some time off Twitter, but the first several days after the invasion were like- It was pretty bad. Jarring to see how people like you know, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier like all the all the wild takes, but like some of the just the normie posts, even like there was one that got you know got dunked on relentlessly because it was like deranged. It was like, yeah, this is bad, but there was like it was a picture, a couple pictures of explosions, and someone was like, yeah, but this is bad. But just take in this aesthetic, and it's like people Jesus. are so detached from the violence and the horrors uh, of war that they. They can't even comprehend. It's like it. They're ju- it's totally sanitized, and part of that's because of how the media talks about it. Part of it's because we're so inundated with military propaganda and the myth of war that it totally sanitizes just how violent and awful uh, armed combat and war is. That people don't even recognize like what they're what they're engaging with, what they're consuming. That it's just it's it's about an aesthetic, or it becomes you know the heroism and the valor and turning zelensky into this this figure despite sharing pictures from a year ago like it's just people gravitate toward the same sorts of things and be if you haven't seen it or haven't read about it or haven't experienced it the violence is completely sanitized and you just and you're you're detached from the real world consequences of it i would just like to say as someone who has reported from Iraq and Afghanistan, both embedded and unembedded, that the violence of war, when seen up close, let alone experienced, is just simply like nothing you can imagine if you haven't experienced it. And I wish I didn't know that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So please, it is very good and well that anyone who looks at this circumstance is gripped with how awful it is and you know will express that and seek to and all i ask is just a bit of reflection about the consequences of primarily viewing a war virtually having that be a typical experience and the ways in which you might tend to read that conflict 
like a narrative you seek to have be satisfying and the relationship that will have i don't obviously like random people are not to like they are not like a grassroots thing that a foreign policy elite is compelled to react to i don't want to like give that impression i guess what i'm sort of stumbling to say is that politicians most aggressive instincts will seek validation from like very casually violent almost narrative like narrative in the sense of being cinematic and 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 kind of detached from viewing this um as a war and this isn't something i think all of us because i certainly don't exempt myself even though i have seen you know wars up close like the effects of this heavy mediation which really masquerades itself in a social media age as not being mediation because it's not the traditional mediation of of like large newspapers and shit is nevertheless something that i think like has a very distorting effect in a way that is exceptionally easy um to weaponize for an escalation that like humanity can really afford fucking least right now yeah and it, it touches on something that you were mentioning before and this is i think one of the most alarming things about the discourse that has been happening around here both in the media and from our political leaders which is that really like the only solutions that we're actually hearing uh from people that have platforms are just how do we continue to escalate this how do we escalate this into even how do we escalate this into a bloody protracted uh sectarian insurgency I guess and no I was, one yeah. no one is suggesting how do we how do we de-escalate how how do we engage in diplomacy how do we encourage dialogue how do we stop this from happening and stop it from getting worse it seems like the only thing anyone is interested in talking about is how do we make this exponentially worse and that's that's a very frightening prospect so I guess I would just say this as, as kind of a last thing. It seems like th the war thus far has concealed two divergent, like, American, like, approaches slash objectives here. The first one is save Ukraine. The second one is defeat Russia. In a superficial level, these things seem, like, inextricable, right? Like, because Russia is the one who invaded Ukraine, like, who else would Ukraine be defeating? But the difference is that at a certain point, and this point has to be like the intervention of diplomacy, like very aggressively so, to force the escalation and find a way out of this as quickly as humanly possible, is that the imperative of inflicting a defeat on Russia that the West is really feeling right now will have as its battlefield Ukraine and Ukraine will yep. not be saved. Ukraine will be made to suffer. Ukraine will be the battleground of a great power competition that Putin had said was already underway and was prompting this. And now everyone's narrative becomes self-reinforcing. And the only people who like directly suffer the most are Ukrainians and then Russians under sanctions. And then who knows how Putin will decide to try and break that deadlock. And that is how these things really escalate in very frightening ways and ought to underscore the importance of how saving Ukraine may involve giving up the objective of inflicting a defeat on Russia. It may involve the objective, because this is how diplomacy works when it's actually positive sum, 
of allowing Putin some way to say, short of invading and devastating and occupying Ukraine, that he got something out of this so he can see a way out. I got to tell you, reading this book that goes through the history of Vladimir Putin, it doesn't really seem like he's interested in that shit. So I am not pretending like I have a formula for that. I am articulating an imperative that will be extremely arduous, but must be pursued while simultaneously being the most difficult political position to sell because it cuts against the impulse that is a very satisfying one emotionally right now in Western publics to defeat Russia, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, yeah, it just does. I mean, there's not a whole lot makes sense right now, but I think in the, in that framework, it's uh, it's something. It's I think it, it's something that we can hold on to. I'm trying. You guys, this is like me entirely extemporizing you. I'm very grateful that you invited me on your show, even yeah. though I am not a Russia expert, a Ukraine expert, a guy who's trying to be on the discourse right now about any of this. So, like, you know, we are, you know, legally immune um, from being yep. dunked on now. I, I just wanted to reinforce that again. The writing that it is always fair game, you know, for, for you to want uh, to dunk on a journalist for uh, is at my Substack newsletter, Forever Wars. <laughs> All right, a great segue. Uh, a great, great segue plug, yeah. to get out yeah, there. There we go. To get us out. <laughs> Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, you guys, for indulging me. That was very rambling. I have no idea how you're going to edit it, and I don't envy you. Thankfully, that's not my job. That <laughs> is right. Rob's. It's a Rob problem. Yeah. That's a Rob problem. <laughs> it's a Rob one. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks again, Spencer. It was a pleasure to, to break this stuff down with you, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Talk to you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>